0: Good morning. It's been a few weeks since we were in the book of John, so let me just spend a couple of minutes refreshing your memory of where we are in the book. We're in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, and the scene is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the feast is held there in Jerusalem. There were three great feasts that all Jewish men were required to go to every year one was the Feast of Pentecost. The other, the Feast of Passover. And the third, the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles. So Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims. Jesus is there. Jesus goes up to the temple, and he begins to teach. He teaches about his divine origin, as he has done many times in the past. He teaches of his equality with the Father, equality with God. And he explains that he is there, that he has come from God to this planet, to Israel, to deliver God's message of life. And so he offers the waters of eternal life, the flowing, refreshing waters of eternal life. He offered that in verse 37 and thereafter. Many in the crowd are amazed at Jesus' words, and they believe in him, they trust in him. Now the religious leaders despise him, they hate him, And they hate the idea of people believing in him. They hate the idea of people following Jesus. So they decide, it's time. It's time. Now's the time for us to get him. Now's the time for us to silence Jesus. So they dispatch officers to arrest him. Jesus quickly runs out of Jerusalem. Right? No. Jesus stands in the temple, and he continues to teach that which they despise. He continues to teach that he is God incarnate. He continues to teach that he has come to this planet to deliver God's message, God's words of eternal life, knowing that they have dispatched officers to arrest him. We break into the scene in verse 40 of John chapter 7, where actually not everyone is believing in him. Look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, when they heard Jesus' teaching, they were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? We see three groups, three groups In this passage, group number one is the group that views Jesus as not the Messiah, but as the prophet. The prophet that Moses had prophesied about back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you. Meaning, the prophet that the Lord raises is not going to be a Moabite. He's not going to be a Philistine. He's not going to be an Egyptian or a Syrian. He's going to be a Jew, like Moses, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And then you see God speaking in verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We know that this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, is a prophecy about Messiah. Messiah is the prophesied prophet. They're one and the same. We know that from Acts chapter 3, where Peter stands up and gives this great sermon there in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus' ascension. Though that is the case, the religious leaders didn't know it. The religious leaders didn't teach that the prophet and Messiah were one and the same. We know that from John 1.19 through 21 that we studied some time ago. The religious leaders created confusion because of their ignorance of the Word of God. The religious leaders created confusion because of their incorrect teaching, and so it's understandable, though not excusable, that the audience, that some in the audience think that there's a distinction between the prophesied prophet from Deuteronomy 18 and the Messiah. It's not excusable because unbelief is never excusable before God. We'll see more of that in a moment. That's the first group. The first group is the group that thinks Jesus is the prophet but not the Messiah. The second group is the group that thinks he is the Christ. Remember, Christ is the English word that is the translation from the Greek word Christos which is a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ is the same thing as saying Messiah. So the second group believe that Jesus is Messiah straight up. No qualifiers, no ifs ands or buts. They just believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ and they rightly believe so. Then the third group. The third group refuses to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Messiah can't come from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. Don't you know that? You people who believe in Christ. This is how the conversation goes there in the temple where Jesus is teaching. Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. And we reading this say, duh. I mean, that's where Jesus is from. He's from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. That's what was prophesied, Micah 5.2. In you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one who rules Israel, whose days are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's the prophecy that this group is mindful of. Micah 5, 2. But they think Jesus is not from Bethlehem. Well, of course He's from Bethlehem. He's born from Bethlehem. All they have to do is ask. He's raised in Galilee. Right? Bethlehem is in Judah, or at that time it's called Judea, in the southern part of the land of the Israelites. Galilee is in the northern part of the uh, land of the Israelites. Nazareth is located in Galilee. He's raised in Nazareth, but He was born in Bethlehem. All they had to do was Ask. But they don't. They don't inquire more about Jesus. They're ignorant of his birthplace. Ignorance is no excuse for unbelief. It's not. You go down to the courthouse, and you stand before the judge, and you committed some crime, and you say, well, judge, I didn't know it was against the law. The judge is going to say, and? He's going to say ignorance is no excuse. I love the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury from a thousand years ago, Anselm. When he described Christianity, when he described the Christian, it is faith seeking understanding. Right? When we come to Christ, we don't fully understand. And actually, when we breathe our last breath on the last day, if we've been studying the Word of God, we don't fully understand even then. Faith is Seeking understanding. You start with faith. That's what they should have thought. They should have, should have thought, He's claimed to be God in the flesh. I trust in Him as, as the Christ. I, I don't understand these details because Christ is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Where was He born? Well, they don't do that. This third group doesn't do that because they're content with their ignorance. They're content... With their unbelief. Keep reading in verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Literally in the Greek this is a schisma. Occurred in the crowd because of him. Our English word schism. That's where we get our English word schism. This is what the Jesus of the Bible does. He divides. The Jesus of the Bible is divisive. I'm not saying that he was rude or obnoxious, not in any way. Right? He's described as meek and merciful and gentle and loving and compassionate. He is that, but make no mistake, he is divisive because he is truth. He is truth personified. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. That claim is a claim not that He speaks truth, but that His very essence, He is truth. His nature is truth. He is truth personified, and truth divides no matter how meek and gentle and compassionate and loving Jesus was and is. Truth divides. The deeper the truth, the deeper the division. The lighter the truth, the lighter the division. All right? If I say that the Fighting Texas Aggie Band is a better band than the University of Texas Band, that's the truth. <laughs> now, if you're from U- University of Texas, you may say, no, the Texas Band is better than the Aggie Band. I don't think that's the truth. But that truth is mildly divisive, let's say. But if I tell you that you will spend eternity in the lake of fire if you reject Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, if I tell you that you will suffer God's condemnation for eternity in the place that Jesus described as weeping and gnashing of teeth and you reject it, that is most divisive though it is true. That truth is much deeper than a truth about trombones and trumpets. The truth of the Word of God is divisive, no matter how gentle, how meek, how compassionate, how loving the speaker. Though Jesus is meek and is gentle, in fact, one of His purposes in coming to the world was to divide this is countercultural okay the, the the world views jesus as a jesus of their own imagination as a jesus who is meek and gentle and compassionate and loving and only that to be sure he is that but he's also wrathful The Scripture uses the phrase, the wrath of God, over 600 times. He's also righteous and holy. And the Scripture says He came to this earth to divide. Look at what it says in Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus says in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He's referring to his death on the cross for the sins of the world. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Schisma. Schism. Verse 52, for from now on five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The power and the presence and the word of Jesus is divisive. At least the Jesus of the Bible. Because His truth cannot be avoided. You can ignore it, but you can't evade it. It's coming. His truth divides. It divides between those who trust in Him and those who do not. It even does it in families. Someone from a Muslim family, someone from a Jewish family, if they trust in Christ, most often they're ostracized. You're dead to me, that child is told by the parents most often it's fulfillment of what Jesus speaks of here in Luke 12 then we keep reading in John chapter 7 verse 44 some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him we know from verse 19 that the religious leaders wanted to kill him this is how much they despise him they want to kill him they hate him but no one lays a finger on Jesus. They can't because it is not yet his hour. It's impossible for them to lay a finger on him because it's not yet his hour. Ultimately the murderers will seize him and ultimately the murderers will kill him but they will do so on Jesus' timing because Jesus is in complete control of all the events. Please do not think of Jesus as some helpless, hapless man who's just kind of being dragged along and he's, he's, he's the product of his circumstances and his circumstances just, you know, the, the religious leaders, they just pounce on him and he's moving events methodically, consistently to an end. He stands there and preaches the word of God to murderers consistently Over and over, and they can't lay a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. And he will move events to bring about his hour. His hour being his arrest, his brutalization, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, but that is not yet. So John then turns the camera. He turns the camera to those officers who are charged with the responsibility to arrest him. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, the chief priests and Pharisees said to the officers, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Udepate hutos Never spoken thus man. That's what they say. Man don't talk like that. Humans don't talk like this human. The officers recognize that this is no ordinary man. They fail to arrest him, not because they're worried about a riot, not because they're worried, oh, some people believed in Jesus and some people didn't, and if we arrest him, then those guys are going to be against us. and That's not why they don't arrest him. They don't arrest Jesus because they are wowed by His words. They're gripped by His words. Those who are sent to seize Him are seized by His words. They go to arrest Him because of His words, and His words arrest them. The one who speaks the Word of God, the one who is named the Word of God. Right? That's one of Jesus' titles, is the Word of God. The Word of God is alive and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is unstoppable. The person who is the Word of God, and that which He speaks. Remember what the, what the Scriptures say, where God says, I will speak My Word, and My Word will not return to Me empty, without accomplishing its purpose. The Word of God is unavoidable. You can't evade it. There's always, always the power that is in the Word. The Pharisees, of course, do not like what they hear from these officers. Keep reading in verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of Pharisees, rulers or Pharisees, have believed in him. Has he? Notice they don't attack the officers for not arresting him. That's not why they attack him. That's not why they talk this way to these officers. They don't say you didn't arrest him. No, they mock the officers. They mock the officers as naive and ignorant, because they sense that the officers are leaning in Jesus's favor like many of the crowd have done in effect the pharisees are saying we're the intelligentsia we're the intellectuals okay we set the standard of truth it's us we're the knowledgeable ones we're the learned ones and we've determined that jesus is a deceiver only the naive the ignorant the simpletons only the stupid Believe in this man because we've determined that he is a deceiver. This is the typical attitude of the arrogant elitist. We see it today, right? Among university professors, among the media, among Hollywood elite. Their perception of truth is what matters. They tell us what to think. And if we have the audacity to not follow what they think, it's not because they're wrong, it's because we're simpletons. It's because we haven't been sufficiently educated, or maybe we've gone to the wrong schools. We're just unknowledgeable. That's the attitude of the Pharisees, and it's the classic attitude of the arrogant elite, even in the year 2023. In the minds of these arrogant elite only the ignorant and the unlearned trust in Jesus. And of course, this is no surprise to, G- to, to Jesus or to God. I mean, this is actually weaved in God's plan. This is God's design. God, in His great sense of humor, has ordained this. He has ordained to take the ones whom the world calls ignorant and foolish and use them to display His glory, calling them unto His eternal glory. God blesses the humble so that through them He may display His glory to a prideful, blind world. Look at how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, he says to the Corinthian believers, Consider your calling, brethren, that, you not, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The principle that runs from the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, from Genesis through Revelation, is that God exalts the humble, and He humbles the exalted always and in our great foolishness we take god's patience as weakness in our great foolishness we take god's god giving more time to repent we take that as his weakness he's not weak he's almighty but he is loving and he is compassionate and he is merciful And in his mercy, he gives us more time, more time to repent, more time to obey, more time to submit. But the principle that is unavoidable when you crack open the Bible is that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted because he alone is worthy. It's just a question of timing. It's not a question of if that he does that. It's a question of when. Then in verse 49, the Pharisees continue Their arrogance. But this crowd, they say, this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. They call the crowd accursed. They're probably referring to Deuteronomy 28, where God lists various curses for those who disobey the law, for the Israelites, if they disobey the law. What the Pharisees are saying is the crowd is ignorant of the law, so they disobey it. We, on the other hand, are learned. We're the intellectuals. We know the law. We obey it. They don't know the law. They disobey it. We're learned. They're ignorant. We're blessed. They're accursed. They're accursed because of their disobedience. Accursed by God because of their disobedience, because of their ignorance of the law. The reason they don't understand that Jesus is a deceiver is because they're dumb. They're ignorant of the law and therefore they're accursed. We on the other hand, we recognize the pharisees say that Jesus is a deceiver because we're more knowledgeable. We're more learned. We're the intellectual. Don't you the intellectuals, don't you know that? We're smart. Don't you know that, officers? Why are you aligning yourselves or why are you even leaning towards aligning yourself with this proud, that is ignorant, and that is accursed. See, John is a master of irony. The Apostle John, as he writes this, is a master of irony, and he displays it here. It's actually the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who are accursed, because in their pride, they have rejected the Son of God. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Or in verse 36 of chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You cannot get more accursed than being under the wrath of God. So the Pharisees reject the Son of God. Jesus says they are accursed, but the Pharisees flip it and say, this crowd who are simpletons, who are dummies, who are unlearned, they're a curse because they believe in Jesus. What always happens is sin brings blindness. So that that which is called, which is good is called evil, and that which is evil is called good. We see it in our culture all the time today, and it's It's increasing exponentially in our culture today, in Western civilization, for that matter, which is in the late afternoon, in its late afternoon, in the twilight almost. Evil is called good, and good is called evil. That's what unbelief produces in the mind. Then in the next few verses, we find another whom the Pharisees attack. Look at verse fifty. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, he who came to Jesus before, being one of them, so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him from him and knows what he is doing, does it? This is the same Nicodemus who visited Jesus by night in John chapter 3. We don't know if he's saved here or not. It appears that by the end of the book, he will be saved. But Nicodemus raises something that we have memorialized in our Constitution. The Fifth Amendment to the Constitution says that you will not be deprived of life, property, or liberty without due process of law. That's what Nicodemus raises. Due process of law. One of the great things that our founding fathers... Did you hear me? Founding fathers, right? The 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 Fed says that that's bigoted to say founding fathers. They were men. We're not going to call them women, because there's a difference between a man and a woman. Forgive me for being a bigot. One of the great things that our founding fathers gave us was due process of law. The government can't come in and say, you're guilty, off to prison. You're guilty, subject to some criminal punishment. No, the government has to give due process. Due process means you're entitled to a fair trial. You're entitled to defend yourself. You're entitled to present your case before the government as to why you're not guilty of a crime. Our founding fathers gave us that because they didn't like what King George did to them. And so we have that memorialized in the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, but our Founding Fathers actually didn't invent due process. Due process was invented by the High Court of Heaven. Due process is enshrined in the Mosaic Law. The exact phrase, due process, isn't used in the law, but the concept, the principle is there. Like in Proverbs 18, 17, where it says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. You see, under the law, you had the one who's accused. Both sides have an opportunity. The one who's doing the accusing and the one, who, the defendant, the accused. Both sides have an opportunity to present their case under the the law or deuteronomy 117 you shall not show partiality in judgment you shall hear the small and the great alike you shall not fear men meaning don't give partiality don't respect this guy who brings this accusation because he's a he's a he's an important guy in the community he's got a lot of he's got a lot of, of livestock meaning money at that time he's got a lot of a land He's an important guy in the community, and he he brought this accusation. It must be true. No, you don't give him more respect than the accused. You judge fairly, due process of law. And then verse 17 of Deuteronomy 1 ends with, For the judgment is God's. God established due process of law. In John chapter 7, the train is starting to leave the station. The locomotive is moving, and it's leaving the station. The government, which is the Sanhedrin, made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin is ready to declare Jesus a criminal without ever having given him any opportunity to defend himself. So Nicodemus makes a procedural objection, or you could say he calls a point of order. In the Texas House of Representatives, when a bill is moving along quickly, it's already gone through committee, through the various committees, and it's moving along quickly. If a, if a representative wants to slow it down, he raises his hand, and he I call a point of order, Mr. Speaker. He's not talking about the bill itself. He's not saying this bill is bad for Texas. He's saying some procedure wasn't followed. They were supposed to go to the to this committee, and they never took the bill to that committee. And then the the Speaker of the House has to resolve that point of order in favor or against it. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. He's calling a point of order. He's calling a procedural issue. He's not raising the merits. He's not saying, Jesus isn't a criminal. He's never committed any violation of the Mosaic Law. He doesn't talk about the merits. He simply raises a fairness issue. Doesn't our law require that we give a man before we accuse him of a crime, before we determine that he's a criminal? Doesn't our law require that he has the opportunity to defend himself, what we would call in our American legal system, due process? Of course the law required that. Nicodemus is raising simply a fairness issue, but his fellow Pharisees are disinterested in Jesus' words. They don't want to hear from Jesus. Because in their unbelief, they have come to despise Him. Look at how they react in verse 52. They answered Him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. There's an old saying among trial lawyers. If the facts are on your side, And you talk about the facts. And you talk about the facts. And you talk about the facts. And you beat the facts into the table. And if the law is on your side but the facts are not on your side. Then you talk about the law and you talk about the law and you beat the law into the table. But if neither the facts nor the law are on your side. Then you just beat the table and beat the table and beat the table. You just make a bunch of noise. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Neither the law nor the facts are on their side. Of course Jesus hasn't violated any provision of the law. So they pound the table. They attack anyone who appears not to agree with them. They attack the officers and they attack Nicodemus. Neither of whom are really coming in and being very strong in Jesus' favor they're both pretty low-key. I mean, the officers just say, well, no one's talked like this man before. And Nicodemus doesn't say Jesus is innocent. He just says, shouldn't we hear him? Shouldn't we give him an opportunity so that he can present his case? The Pharisees despise Jesus, and so fairness and anybody who even appears to be in Jesus' favor must be attacked. The Pharisees bring up Galilee, and the reason they bring up Galilee here in this passage is because the religious leaders in Jerusalem in the south looked down on the Galileans, looked down on the people of Galilee. They're not very sophisticated. They're not very refined. Were the religious refined people here in the capital in Jerusalem? Plus, there's, there are a lot of Gentiles up there in that region in the north. So they think that Nicodemus is defending Jesus a Galilean because Jesus was raised in Galilee, so that they so they accuse Nicodemus of himself being a Galilean. This is what you'd call an ad hominem attack. You know, an ad hominem attack is we're having a conversation and maybe you know maybe the conversation gets a little heated, it's it's some important topic and and I make my arguments, and you make your arguments, and your arguments are much more effective. And so I just kind of. Your mama! Because I got nothing else to say. Because I can't respond to your arguments, because your arguments are right on point. And so I attack you. Your mama wears combat boots or something. I attack you personally. That's what they're doing here with Nicodemus. Nicodemus makes a point that they can't really refute. Of course, the Mosaic Law allowed for an accused to defend himself before they convicted him. And they know that. So they accuse Nicodemus, well, you're just a Galilean, just like the guy that it appears you're defending. And everybody knows Galileans are... Simpletons. Galileans are unknowledgeable because nothing comes from Galilee that's good, the Pharisees think. And then in their emotional frenzy, as they're pounding the table, these experts in the Scriptures say this. Search the Scriptures and you'll see that no prophet has come from Galilee In other words, Messiah can't come from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. Not even a single prophet. Is that right? Is that accurate? No prophet, no Old Testament prophet came from Galilee? No, that's not accurate. There's a very well-known prophet that came from Galilee. A sensational prophet that came from Galilee. A prophet that no one ever forgets. A prophet that was involved in a sensational incident. In fact, it's the only prophet that Jesus ever compared himself to. Back in Matthew 12, prior to these events in John chapter 7, the Pharisees challenged Jesus back then as well, in Matthew 12. And they claimed that Jesus was performing his miracles in the power of Beelzebul, Also pronounced Beelzebub, another name for the devil. That's pretty strong rejection, right? When Jesus is performing miracles and they say, Yeah, I can't refute the miracle. Everybody knows you did the miracle, but you did it as the agent of the evil one, as opposed to the agent of the living God. They accuse Jesus of doing his miracles in the power of Beelzebul, and then they have the temerity to demand that he do a sign. To to demand that he do another miracle, after they just accused him of being the agent of the devil. Give us something flashy, Jesus. Come on. Dance for us. Do do a nice miracle for us. This is Matthew 12, and look at Jesus' response in Matthew 12, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Where's Jonah from? He's from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is just a few miles from Nazareth. Jonah is from Galilee, and that's in the Scriptures. That's not an extra-biblical source. That's in the Scriptures. That's 2 Kings 14, verse 25. Keep reading. In verse 40 of Matthew 12, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus compares His death, burial, and resurrection to the sensational event of the prophet Jonah. How do you forget Jonah? I mean, Every kid is taught Jonah, right? I mean, every Hebrew kid had to be taught Jonah, just like we teach our kids today. Jonah, I mean, that's one of the first stories that you learn as a kid, because it's so sensational. And just a side note here. The intelligentsia today, right? They'd say that whole, that whole Jonah story, that's just, that's just fiction. That's just legend. Here's the deal. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, everything else is easy. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then he controls it. If he made the molecules of the big fish, then he can control the big fish. If he made our molecules, then he can control our molecules. Everything else is easy if you believe Genesis 1-1. Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, links his ministry to the event that the intelligentsia in the year 2023 would say, that's just plain simpleton, gibberish. The event of a man being in a fish three days. Jonah. Jesus doesn't care about the world's rejection of the story of Jonah. He doesn't care so much that he links his own ministry, and he validates the story of Jonah by connecting his ministry, his death, his burial, and resurrection on that event. If Jonah didn't happen, if Jonah's event in the fish didn't happen, then Jesus wasn't. He didn't die, bury, was buried and resurrected. Or he's a liar. Right? I love C.S. Lewis's words. You can't say that Jesus was a good moral teacher and that's it. Because a good moral teacher isn't a liar. He's a liar. He's either Lord, liar, or a lunatic. Those are the only options. He didn't leave us another option. And so, the reason why the Pharisees, who surely learned the story of Jonah as little Hebrew boys, the reason why the Pharisees forget Jonah from Gath Hefer, which they would have known because it's in the scripture, the reason they say search, when they say search in the passage here, they mean search the scriptures. And they say, search the scriptures. No prophet has ever come from Galilee. The reason they forget Jonah is because they hate Jesus. And in their blindness, they don't want to support anything that is related to Jesus. Jesus links himself to Jonah. We're not going to talk about Jonah either. We are singularly focused on eliminating Jesus. But Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. That's why he teaches this message to murderers. They despise him. In fact, Jesus says in verse 7 of this chapter, of John chapter 7, he says that the world hates him. This is hate. Not the way the world uses the word hate today, right? I mean, all these many, many words have been given new meanings today. Love means something different. Hate means something different. Man means something different. Woman means something different. Gay means something different. Words have different meanings today. Jesus isn't using the word hate the way it's been recharacterized today. He's using it the way it means. In verse 7, when he says the world hates him, that's laying the context here for the whole chapter where we get towards the end of the chapter where we are now, and you're seeing this picture of these Pharisees who hate him. And so their hate blinds them. It blinds them to forget about the prophet from Gethsefer. It blinds them with respect to his words. Though he is before these men who hate him, he loves them. And in his great compassion... He offers them eternal life. That's why verses 37 and 38, as we saw last time, are beautiful words, words of life. Jesus stood, in verse 37, and cried out in the temple. He stands there. People are sitting. Remember, the, the, the event there of the, of the festival of Boos, it involves water and the, and the priest gathering water from the pool of Siloam and, and, and going up the hill, up to the temple and pouring water there on the, on the altar. And Jesus stands up and says, this is about me. I offer you living water. Remember verse 37. He stood up in the temple saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said from his innermost being flow rivers will flow rivers of living water jesus loves his enemies and so he gives them an offer of eternal life maybe you're here today as the enemy of jesus maybe you're not as as vitriolic as them maybe you're simply the enemy because you're a sinner. That's how we all are before we come to Christ. Before we come to Jesus, we're all the enemies of Jesus. We're the enemies of God because God is holy and righteous and pure, and we're not. We're sinners by nature. No one has to tell a two-year-old to say no to Mama. It's natural. It's natural. Mama expects it because Mama herself told her, Mama, no. No. At age two. That's why we call them the terrible twos because we expect the sin nature to express itself at age two. The sin nature isn't expressing itself at age three weeks. It's just a cute little adorable baby. But then the sin nature expresses itself by age two because it's in us. It's who we are. We're sinners by nature subject to God's fierce judgment and God's wrath and yet in His Mercy and love. He offers his enemies, because he loves his enemies, eternal life. If you're here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, all you have to do is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. Or if you're that way and you're watching this video message, all you have to do is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And in that instant, You become the child of God, the daughter of God, the son of God, no longer under his judgment. Still a sinner? Yes. But having received his righteousness, so he sees you not as the sinner that you are. He sees me not as the sinner that I am. He sees me as righteous, having received the righteousness of the one who lived righteously, who died righteously. Bearing the sins of the world, the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day, to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. He sees Christ's righteousness in us and he loves you for it if you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. If you have not, then I have a message for you from my master. It's a message of mercy. He calls you to mercy. He calls you to submit to Him because faith in Him is an act of submission. It's a thought of submission. You were called to submit to God by faith. In faith, He gets all the credit. You say, that's too easy. Well, you're right. If it were me, I probably would have made it harder. But praise God, it's not up to me. God loves you, and that's why He made it Easy. Painful for him, he gave it all. He gave his life for you. He gave everything for you. God in the flesh did. Because he loves you. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit about it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us through your Christ. We thank you that you sent him to die for our sins. We thank you that you sent him to reveal you to us. We thank you that you've memorialized his words for us in the scriptures, that we may open them in freedom and be edified by it and be transformed by them. We praise you for all these things. We are careful to give you all of the honor and praise and glory. Give us courage as we go forth in a world that despises you. Give us courage to speak your truth for your glory and to speak it in love to a world that despises you and your Christ and even your people. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.